0: Hello everyone and welcome to episode 90 of the History Hotline. My name is Diana Lynn Cook and I'll be your host today for this episode all about the 1918 British West Indian Regiment Mutiny. Now first of all we've got to acknowledge that this is the 90th episode. I can't believe that it's been 90 episodes already. It feels quite crazy and a little bit Surreal that I've been able to talk about historical events, moments, people, individuals, groups, organisations for 90 episodes. Um, but here we are uh, and I'm excited about this episode. I've been building up this for the past two weeks now. We started with the West Indian Regiment formed in 1795. Then we looked at the mutiny of 1812 in Dominica last week. And now we're going to be looking at the mutiny that I kind of had in mind when I started thinking about the West Indian Regiment. And it is the 1918 um, mutiny that took place in Italy during the end of um, the First World War. And it's kind of the mutiny or what I know the West Indian Regiment for. Um, It's how it kind of entered my mind. So this episode will be all about that. uh, And if you need more context or want to go back and listen to episodes 88 and 89 I would definitely advise that just to make sure this one makes sense. There are so many patterns when it comes to the West Indian Regiment and today's episode which is about the British West Indian Regiment note the name difference Um, but yeah there are so many like patterns with this history um, of these regiments of predominantly uh, black soldiers fighting um, in like conflict in armed conflict and so I think it's important to go back and listen uh, just to make sure this kind of follows in with the pattern and the trends that have already been brought forward in this series. Nothing we can do will alter the fact that the black man has begun to think and feel himself as good as the white. British Colonial Office Memo, 1919. In 1915, the British West India Regiment was formed, grouping together Caribbean volunteers who were not conscripted into service but volunteered due to the demand needed for soldiers during the conflict of the First World War. This shouldn't be confused with the West India Regiment that the last two episodes were on. Um, That was founded in 1795 and was normally stationed solely in the British colonies, The British West India Regiment was stationed in Britain, uh, even though it took on uh, volunteers from the West Indies, the Caribbean islands and countries in that region. Today's episode will be in eight parts. The first section will be kind of an introduction, just continuing on some of the introductory elements to the British West Indian Regiment. Second will be about the racist attitudes towards black servicemen. The third will be about the volunteers, those West Indian men that answered the call. Their service experiences, the SS Veralda, which set sail in 1915. The mutiny itself, the aftermath, and finally, the end sentiments of West Indian men from World War I. So, when World War I breaks out in 1914... As I mentioned, thousands of Caribbean people volunteered for service. Now, Marcus Garvey, who was founder uh, and leader of the UNIA at the time, um, and just, um, you know, a Jamaican man that was fighting for the self-improvement of black people and them improving their condition socially and politically and economically in the world at the time. Um, he encouraged, actually, men to join the war effort um, and, the kind of rationale behind that was if they showed loyalty to the king they might be treated and recognized as equals having you know fought alongside of their white counterparts their white British counterparts. Booker T Washington who is an American leader um, in regards to black liberation he also argued um, a similar point that you know joining this war effort as an African American when they did um join the war, that being America in nineteen seventeen, um, that they should take part. And, you know, it was argued that World War One was a perfect opportunity for African Americans to fulfil the requirements for equality and freedom. They were going to be you know, dedicating themselves to service, potentially laying down their life for the cause and they could prove their worth and show that they deserve the same rights as white people. So these parallel calls in the Caribbean and in America um, to African-Americans to join the service um, in order to prove themselves and eventually gain equality. This was kind of a big theme and a big motivation for a lot of men. Um, going into the war, and maybe not them thinking about gaining equality on like a grand scale, but them within themselves, you know, they would be trained as, as soldiers. They would have the uniform, they would have the status and the rights that could, was conferred onto them as soldiers. And them being able to do that would allow them better freedoms in the future, a better social status moving back to the Caribbean after the war, or, you know, being in Britain still. Um, and so these kind of motivations for their own personal improvement and a better lot when the war was over were very very key in the reasons for them joining the war effort. There were some people that opposed Black people fighting in World War One. Um, socialists such as um, A. Philip Randolph, Chandler Owen, who were African Americans, they said that the fight for democracy at home and for rights at home, home being America for them, should precede the fight for it abroad. And there was a lot of people that were saying this is a white man's war. Black people should not be involved in it. So they were the kind of two sides, but. It seemed to be the case that with thousands of people volunteering, the voice that said, you know, you might become in a better place to fight for equality um, and for better rights. That was the kind of louder voice and the more prevailing voice. um, And, you know, that was the reason why so many people decided to join the war effort. Now, you can probably hear the tone of my voice and this being a moment of expectation versus reality and the reality being a 1918 mutiny, um, which we'll get to soon. Um, but I will say, you know, as we know, in the case of America that I won't really touch on again, um, when those black soldiers did return from their brief stint in the war, you know, they only joined the effort quite late on. Um, African-Americans had, in some cases, more money and more the ability to move into urban areas. Racial tensions grew. The KKK grew in massive numbers during world war one race riots erupted in places like st louis chicago tulsa and other cities it was very clear that white people did not intend to treat african-americans any differently to how they had during um prior to the war the war had changed nothing for them that's the american story we're gonna park it there maybe that's um, a conversation for another episode and we're gonna now think about some of those racist attitudes towards um, black servicemen attitudes that have persisted from the first episode i made about this series in 1795 where there were issues with the planters not wanting um, enslaved formerly enslaved people to to be armed and as soldiers now this time around the conversation wasn't happening between um, slave owners and plantation owners uh, and the british government who wanted the regiment it was a conversation between secretary of state for war lord kitchener um, and the colonial office, um, and it was a similar like, conversation that happened during World War II between the war office and the colonial office. Essentially, the war office did not want black soldiers and the colonial office had men across the West Indies that wanted to sign up and were literally stowing away on ships to Britain to join the war effort the desire was clearly very strong. In the end, it was King George V whose intervention combined with the need for men, the desperate need for men because casualties were mounting up within the British armed forces. um, And it was all made possible with a solution that King George considered and created and thought through. And that was the creation of the British West Indian Regiment.
1: With regards to the English speaking Caribbean, um, not only was it a question of having centuries of relationships with with Britain through commerce, education, and administration, but uh, I think that centrally, um, religion and and. Uh, The social structure was very much a British imprint and therefore they felt an affiliation by virtue of that. And so the Caribbean, despite its own problems with natural disasters, managed to submit over £2 million in cash and over £54 million worth of goods and assets in aid, including cutting-edge technology such as nine aeroplanes.
0: That was a clip from a lady called Blondell Clough, who is chief executive of the West India Committee, speaking in a YouTube video on the West India Committee's channel called The Caribbean's Great War. Um, And she speaks about the long-standing relationship with Britain that the Caribbean had and the fact that, you know, Britain had imprinted so much of its um, social norms, cultural norms, religious norms um, and, you know, political expectations on the Caribbean Um, And so it was only natural that they became part of the war effort and felt that they should become part of that effort. Um, Despite the huge natural disasters and the financial issues in the Caribbean, um, you know, their support for the war effort was huge financially and in actual life, you know, people going to join the effort. Um, and potentially laying down their life for king and country. In
1: 1916, a contingent of West Indians participated um, by invitation in the Lord Mayor's show. When I think about the service of the British West Indies Regiment, I always think of that that recruitment poster that um, announces men from every class, creed and colour, come and support your king and country. And I think that today we have managed to define um, the Caribbean society in such a simplistic form that we have forgotten who we truly are. We are people of every class, color, and creed from the four corners of the world. A wonderful example of how diverse Caribbean society is is the case of Frank Alexander Dupas, who was the first Jewish recipient of a Victoria Cross. Um, His family was not only um, integrated into Caribbean society, but they were also members of the West India Committee.
0: Another clip from Blondale Clough. Um, speaking about the first Jewish person to receive the victory cross. He actually was awarded it posthumously as he did die on the front lines. It was presented to his parents. Um, But, you know, it's another example of of members of the West India Regiment, British West India Regiment, fighting on the front lines, um, which for a very long time, um, many people did not know that there were people of Caribbean descent or Caribbean people, full stop, that fought in battle during the First World War. Now, the experiences of the soldiers will be scattered throughout this podcast episode, but in this section, um, I thought I'd kind of just give a few examples um, of some of the ways in which Caribbean men would have been made useful uh, within this war effort. Um, Now, in terms of fatalities, it was said that 1,500 West Indian soldiers perished, mainly through disease, and I need you to take that, point on quite seriously um, because it was something that we spoke about last episode when we were thinking about the soldiers having to do the laborious work that their white counterparts weren't being asked to do Um, and so this means that a lot of them die through disease not through being shot by enemy fire um, or on the front lines but through very laborious um, work that was very difficult very unsanitary um, and led to the mutiny that occurred in 1918 Now, according to the Imperial War Museum, their work involved a lot of digging trenches, building roads, gun emplacements, acting as stretcher bearers, loading ships and trains, working in ammunition dumps, and this was difficult and little remembered posting. It seems that as the war dragged on, Britain needed all the help it could get, um, and eventually they began to ease restrictions on the role that the British West Indian Regiment men would play, and they moved on, in part from doing so much laborious work into um, send it, being sent into fight on the front lines in German East Africa, German colonized parts of East Africa at that time. They were engaged in guarding the railway line, captured from German forces, manning um, communications posts, finding and capturing German ammunition dumps. Um, and they went on to be stationed in Egypt. Um, guarding the Suez Canal and also in in Palestine um, and in um, Belgium as well. So there were many places that they were posted to, but they were also, in the majority, doing a lot of this menial, laborious, unsanitary work. And that was part of their frustration during this war effort. Now, another story that really, I don't know, upsets me a bit uh, when we think about this war is the story of the SS Verdala um which set sail in nineteen fifteen. It was the third ship um to go to Britain from the Caribbean. They were setting sail from Jamaica in the most part. Um and on this uh voyage in particular it left in March, um and you know, the troops were dressed in tropical uniform because they left in March and they were headed straight to England. Um now realistically I don't really think that them being in tropical uniforms made sense but that was you know the way that they were equipped to leave um, and their journey was perilous they were supposed to go straight to britain however they took a detour in halifax nova scotia which is in canada on their way due to a german u-boat now 1100 men set sail around 600 were rendered unfit for soldiering by the cold Around 100 had to have amputations of various limbs and digits due to frostbite and it was estimated that about 5 passed away from the cold and the bitterness of the cold which they were completely unequipped for in tropical uniforms. So in the case of that one ship, it was off to a terrible start um, for some of the arrivals that were signing up and volunteering to join the British West Indian Regiment. Now, thought I'd talk to you about the 1st and 2nd Battalion, and they served in combat roles in Africa and the Middle East, most notably in Palestine, um, to kind of, I think it was part of the strategy to get into and kind of combat the Ottoman Empire at the time. The fight in Palestine was part of David Lloyd George, Prime Minister of Britain's hopes of bringing Jerusalem, and I quote, to the British people in time for Christmas. Um, The battles took place in the Holy Lands, Holy Lands for most Abrahamic faiths, Um, And there were references in the kind of memory of these battles to scenes of Armageddon and the end of the biblical end of days. Um, Their victory, they hoped, would be symbolic of a bigger victory um, to a post-war order that might change their social standing and and the lack of respect they face as West Indian men, as black men um, and as members of the empire. Um, They wanted a better standard of living in the Caribbean, they wanted less racism, they wanted a better set of outcomes following the huge sacrifices they were making and on the kind of lands in Palestine, um, faced with um, such intense battling. That's part of the battle they were fighting, not just one against Germany, but also one against um, the perception that the world had of them and the way that they were treated um, by the empire. However, as you can probably imagine, this was not to be the case. One Trinidadian soldier speaking about his time in Egypt wrote to a friend saying, We are treated neither as Christians nor as British citizens, but as West Indian, N-words, without anybody to be interested in nor look after us. And that was the sentiment of a Trinidadian soldier. Now, you know, towards the end of the First World War in 1918, Um, British West Indian regiment soldiers were actually denied a pay rise that was given to other British troops on the basis that they had been classified as a native force, native to the country of their origin, however they were not. As we said at the beginning, they were a British regiment. They literally had it in the title, British West Indian Regiment. Now, once again, this creates a lot of tension. You know, the poor treatment they've received, the lack of pay rise in this instance, um, and the poor start a lot of them had, um, those that would have been on the SS Feralda. Um, The sentiment regarding this experience during the First World War was negative. Um, Morale was low, and it was at this point that they are... Um, brought to um, Taranto in Italy as part of the demobilisation period um, in the wake of the war. Um, and it's at this point that the mutiny occurs um, because tensions kind of reach a boiling point and everything explodes. As a result of severe labour shortages in Taranto, Italy... The West Indians were the ones that once again had to carry out the arduous physical tasks. Their work included loading and unloading ships, performing tasks like building and cleaning toilets for white soldiers, Um, and it caused a lot of resentment and it led to the mutiny that we are thinking about today.
1: Italian civilian labors in fact went on strike and were successful uh, in receiving a pay award. At the same time, The British West Indies Regiment was actually commanded to dig latrines for Italian labourers, which was regarded by the West Indian soldiers as wholly unacceptable. The Toronto Mutiny really brought to a head a number of issues around discrimination and ill-treatment that the British West Indian soldiers felt they'd experienced through the course of the war.
0: And that was Professor Richard Smith uh, speaking in a YouTube video on the West India Committee's channel called the Caribbean's Great War. Um, speaking about issues, about the tasks that the West Indian Regiment were made to do. The fact that the Italian labourers went on strike successfully and they were a native force. And it was said that native forces uh, wouldn't be getting a pay rise. Um, however, they successfully did. Um, the British West Indian Regiment had just come you know, back from this huge battle. Um, while some of the the battalion anyway um, securing Palestine Uh, yet this was the work that they were made to do it just wasn't the way that they envisioned themselves experiencing uh, war and service in in Britain and well globally at this point uh, as the war expanded so the mutiny begins it begins as a pay issue but we have this build-up as I've mentioned from the SS Veralda from the the fact that West Indians weren't even wanted for service initially. It all builds up and it all creates um, this mutiny in 1918 um, when tensions just come to a head, essentially. In August 1918, 12 respected soldiers signed a petition outlining their grievances about pay and promotion. This was supported by the government, um, the governor of Barbados. On the 6th of December 1918, 180 sergeants signed a similar petition because the first one wasn't taken any notice of the regiment was ordered to clean the latrines of Italian labourers in retaliation. So 180 sergeants signed this petition explaining the grievances with pay um, and the issues that they have about the work they're doing and the response is go and clean the toilets of these Italian labourers. So not only are you there to do laborious work, you are going to be serving the labourers of Italy um, and doing the work of cleaning their mess in, in, by way of cleaning toilets and this absolutely pushes them over the edge and on the 6th of December 1918 uh, they begin to mutiny they refuse to work this mutiny only lasts four days but in this time a senior commander lieutenant colonel Willis who had given the orders to the British West Indian men to clean the toilets in the first place of the Italian Labour Corps was assaulted um, a machine gun company and a battalion of the Worcestershire Regiment were actually dispatched to restore order um, in Toronto as uh, the British West Indian Regiment mutinied uh, and would not cooperate uh, with orders. Um, and, you know, many things are kind of up for contention uh, when it comes to what actually happened uh, during the mutiny. There were there are cases in their stories that allegedly there was an explosion or some kind of bomb went off. There are stories of people of being killed and shot. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, it was a mutiny. They refused to work. They refused to take orders. Um, and the regiment was had to be disarmed. Um, In the aftermath of the mutiny, 60 men were put on trial, 47 were found guilty. Most were um, sentenced to a prison sentence of three to four years. One was sentenced to death, but had his sentence commuted to jail for 20 years and was then released early. And there's a record of him back in Jamaica um, in the kind of time period that would have suggested he was released early. One was allegedly shot, but sources do differ in regards to this um, being actually a part of the mutiny. Or something else. And when I say shot, sorry, he was um, executed, allegedly, um, by firing squad. But again, as I said, the way that the dates time up with this, it's not clear whether this was as a result of the mutiny or as a result of something else he was accused and found guilty of um, that happened during the war. The final section of the podcast today is all about the sentiment left regarding World War I in the taste of the mouth of the British West Indian Regiment. Now, they were not invited to take part in any victory parades at the end of the war, which was a swift shift from their invitation towards the start of the war to be part of the parades um, that were occurring. No welcome committee was arranged back in Jamaica when they returned. They were not given the typical soldier's welcome that they deserved and that was usual. Although the mutiny was crushed bitterness persisted and on the 17th of December 1918 about 60 non-commissioned officers NCOs held a meeting to discuss the question of black rights, self-determination and closer unity um, within islands and countries in the West Indies. An organisation called the Caribbean League was formed at this gathering to further these objectives. Now the Caribbean League did not last a very long time but in speaking about the aftermath of this mutiny and the sentiment left over from the war, it's a really important um, thing to bring up when we're thinking about the kind of political shifts that occur. At another meeting on the 20th of December, a few days later, under the chairmanship of a one man named Sergeant Baxter, who had just been superseded by a white non-commissioned officer, a sergeant of the 3rd British West Indian Regiment, argued, and I quote, that the black man should have freedom and govern himself in the West Indies, and that if necessary, force and bloodshed should be used to attain that object. His sentiments were loudly applauded by those present. And they decided, the non-commissioned officers uh, and other soldiers, decided that they were going to have a general strike for higher wages on their return to the West Indies. So once they arrived, um, and they did arrive at a variety of points, um, a number of the colonies, St Lucia... Grenada, Barbados, Antigua, Trinidad, Jamaica, and British Guyana were all experiencing violent strikes um, and riots. And these were occurring between 1916 and 1919 due to um, labour conditions, workers' rights, pay, similar to the issues uh, that were seen in the 1930s. Um, this was a turmoil that they, they arrived back onto Caribbean soil in. The disgruntled British West India Regiment soldiers were radicalised. There were a load of young black men, young West Indian men at this time calling for equal rights, self determination um, and just a better standing in society, not just because they were former soldiers but because they were human beings and they had the right to be treated as such. The war experience definitely impacted their political calls back home moving into the 1920s and onwards. I wanted to share an extract from a Guardian article uh, written by Simon Rogers called titled, There Was No Parade For Us. Um, and it is a man called George Blackman from Barbados speaking in 2002 when he was aged 105. The immediate result was that the West Indian troops were kept away from the victory parades that marked the end of the war and hurried home under armed guard. When the war finished, there was nothing, says Blackman. I had to come and look for work. The only thing that we had is the clothes and the uniform that we got on. The pants, the jacket, the shirt and the boots. You can't come home naked. When we got home, if you got a mother or father, you have something. But if you're alone, you got to look for work. When I come, I had nobody. I had to look for work. I had to eat and buy clothes. Who going to give me clothes? I didn't have a father or nobody. Now I said, the English are no good. I went to Jamaica and I meet up with some soldiers and asked them, here boy, what the government give you? They said, the government give us nothing. I said, we're just the same. And at this point, I think it's a full circle moment where we go back to the secret memo from the colonial office in 1919 that I started with that said, nothing we can do will alter the fact that the black man has begun to think and feel himself as good as the white." This, um, you know, colonial office memorandum that came out that suggested that black people had a chip on their their shoulder. They were thinking of themselves too highly. They thought of themselves as equal and how dare they. But I think it completely contrasts George Blackman's sentiments where he said, the government has given us nothing. We're just the same, speaking about himself from one West Indian man to another West Indian man from Jamaica. They left the war feeling absolutely used, taken for granted And violated. And the idea that after all that, the colonial office would suggest that in fact they felt themselves equal to white men when they had spent the whole war reminding black men that they were not is absolutely crazy to me. And I will leave you with a poem written by an unnamed troop called The Black Soldier's Lament. Stripped to the waist, and sweated chest, midday's reprieve brings much needed rest, from trenches deep toward the sky, none fighting troops, and yet we die.